morning. So good to see you guys. It's um, thanks. So good to see all of you this morning. Um, for those of you who have not seen me before, or you've never seen my face. My name is Wayan. I'm one of the pastors in the SIBKL family, um, but my main ministry is with LifeGen, one of our church plants, and uh, on behalf of LifeGen, we bring you greetings, we bring you our love and blessing, and, and, and just so much thank you to the main church, SIBKL. So just give God glory for that. We want to thank you so much for the support that you've given us to, to us as a church. But I also want to say this, uh, three years ago, on, in March of 2020, and we will do this every year, on the first week of March, 20, um, of, of March every year, is when our church plants were birthed. So LifeGen is three years old. Um, Water, Workplace at the River is three years old. SIB Sungai Buloh is also three years old. So can I just, on, on behalf of LifeGen and on behalf of myself, just wish all of you, people who have birthed these church plants and the church plants themselves, a very happy birthday. I want to it's, it's it's amazing to see what God has done in our church throughout this past three years because not just have we grown, not just have we multiplied, but God has allowed us to thrive. You know, it's one thing to say, I've survived the pandemic. It's one thing to say, I've survived the economic uh, downturn. But it's another thing to say that God has enabled us to thrive if, even in the circumstances. And that's what God has done for all of us as church plants. That's what God has done for this church, this main church, the, 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 the parent of all these church plants. And, and looking at all of you today, and, and just now as an SMCC, packed out. And look at all of you today and, and, and just going, this is what God has done in our church. God has allowed us to thrive. God has allowed us to thrive. So let's praise God for that. Let's give God glory for that. And so it's my honour to, to, to share the Word of God with you today. Uh, as you know, we've started on this Luke series, and, and I'm really glad to, to, look into, to look into Luke, as Pastor Isaac's uh, sermon title was the last time, um, to look into Luke once again. For me, Luke was, was very important, a very core uh, to my understanding as a Christian, uh, but also to my SPM. I took Bible knowledge for SPM, in case you didn't know. So I took Bible knowledge and you to study Luke and Acts um, as, as part of that. So I, I sat on it, I, I, I meditated on it, I memorized it, I went for classes on it, and we go chapter by chapter and learning and understanding, and then got sit for exam for it. You know? um, and, and we sat for the exam, we, we, we had to do all of that in Luke. And so I, I'm so glad to be able to look into Luke once again uh, and to, again, ask God, look, I've studied this before. But God, what are you going to show me today? When I studied Luke back in those days, the context or the concept in which we did these studies was to look at every chapter and to look at all the stories in those chapters and then ask ourselves, as I go through this one particular story, what lesson can I learn from it? What was Jesus saying here? What was the encounter? What were some of the interesting things that took place there that you then learn from and then apply? But as I look at Luke this time round, I ask myself this question. Is there a particular way in which Luke compiled different stories together or different encounters with Jesus together, different messages of Jesus together in order to bring about a big picture lesson that we can learn? 
A lot of times as, as, as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, we look at big picture questions. Like for example, if you look at the, uh, at the gospel according to Luke, you ask, who is Luke writing this for? You ask yourself, what is the purpose of writing this? You look at the first section where he actually addresses this gospel to a person. And you ask yourself these questions. Now, what I'm going to challenge you to do and think about is this. If I read an entire chapter, yes, one chapter may have, let's say, five or six different stories. But is there a reason why these stories were fit together in this particular segment of the gospel? Is there a particular reason why, and it's not necessarily Luke in his mind doing this, but the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke as he wrote, why did he put these set of passages or these set of stories together at this section? And what I want to suggest to you is this, as you, as you go through it, as you study it, I think you will come across this idea that yes, the entire gospel has an entire narrative with a, with a purpose, but every section that you read or compilation of sections will bring about a big picture lesson that we can gather and we can apply. We can learn and we can apply. And that's what I want to suggest to you today. My passage today, or my set of passages today, start from Luke chapter 5, verse 1, to Luke chapter 6, verse 11. So I want to encourage you, take out your Bibles now. Like now. Take out your Bibles now. If you have a hard copy Bible, even better, because I want you to keep that, those pages open. Because what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to put up the passage, the entire passage on the screen. It's just too long. But as I go through the overview and as I go through the different stories and the different passages, I want you to be able to, again, not look at me, look at your word. Sorry, look at God's word. Look down at your Bible, look at God's word, and, and go through the story as I share this with you. And I hope and I believe that the Holy Spirit will inspire us, will change us, will transform us even as we go through the word of God. Shall we pray? Lord, I just want to say right now, and even as, I, as we were worshipping, the phrase that comes to my mind is, hearts come alive. And I want to speak this over everyone in this church, everyone listening here and online, that your hearts will come alive. That the Holy Spirit will begin to quicken and stir and prompt your hearts as the Word of God is preached, but more so as the Word of God is, is heard and, and, and sinks deep into your hearts. Hearts come alive today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're looking at a huge chunk of verses today. A series of stories and encounters with Jesus. Uh, so I'm going to give you a quick summary. Here's the quick overview of the stories. There are seven stories in Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, verse 11. Um, and, and we want to just go through them briefly. So if you have a hard copy Bible, open it up. You can flow along with me as you go, as we go. And so the first story is Jesus calling the first disciples. The first disciples in Luke's record are four people, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And what took place in the calling of the first disciples was this. Jesus goes to, goes to the lake and there's a huge crowd following him. He wants to teach the crowds. And so the best place to do that was not on a stage like this because there weren't any, but on a boat. And so he got on a boat, presumably Peter's boat. He got on a boat and then started teaching the crowds. And he taught and he taught and he taught. And when he was done, he turns around to Peter and goes, let down your nets for a catch. Let's go catch some fish. And Peter's looking at Jesus and, and he's, 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 he's puzzled. He's boggled. First of all, you're not a fisherman. 
Second, I toiled all night and I caught nothing. Now you want me to let down my nets for a catch? But he does it anyway. And the rest of the story is actually, sometimes you say the rest is history, right? I say this one is the rest is historical. Because it was a net-breaking, boat-sinking kind of catch. And not just one boat, two boats. And so he lets down the nets for a catch. He catch he, he's, he's trying to catch it in, and he's realizing there is too much fish for my net. He calls James and John, bring your boat along, and then they come and help him, and both boats begin to start sinking because of the load of fish they've caught. But the amazing thing after that is this. Peter, looking at all that was going on, suddenly turns to Jesus and then says, Depart from me, from I am a sinful man, O Lord. We're going to look at that a bit later. But then Jesus responds to him and he says, Come, and I will make you fishers of men. Not just did Peter join, Andrew, James, and John, join, but like Andrew, James, and John left their boats, left their durian runto, windfall catch, left their jobs, and decided to follow Jesus. First story. Second story is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Sorry, Jesus healing the leper. The leper, now leprosy is, in those days, is not what we usually understand as leprosy today. Uh, the word leprosy or the word leper refers to a man with a skin disease. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's leprosy, but some kind of, some form of skin disease. But the point that, that was raised when someone had the skin disease was that the person would be considered unclean. Under their laws, it would be considered unclean. You're not supposed to touch him. You're not supposed to be near him. In fact, and he walks around, he has to declare himself unclean, unclean, unclean. It's sort of like this ambulance siren. And so you know, oh, step aside. Drive to the side. Stay on the side. This unclean man is walking past. I don't want to go near him. I don't want to touch him. But the interesting part of this story is that this man, who probably said, unclean, 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 walks over to Jesus and says, if you are willing will you make me clean? And then Jesus does the most amazing thing that anyone who is unclean can experience. God, the righteous man, the teacher, the clean man, touches him. Touches him. Literally, by law, if you touch, you become unclean. But he touches him and says, I will be clean. And he is healed. Totally. So that, 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 that he's no longer a leper. And so Jesus then tells him, look, don't tell anyone. You don't have to tell anyone. Just go to the priest, do the proper rituals for purification, uh, and, and, and you're clean. Of course, he decides not to follow that, and he goes tells everybody. Of course, he probably did the rituals. But he decided to tell everybody, and then there was a set of crowds. There was a crowd that decided to follow Jesus because they heard, hey, this guy can heal. This guy has got signs and wonders with him. And so they, they, this crowd begins to form because there's this man who is now reputably a, not just a teacher, but a healer. And then the passage ends with the story of, or the, 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 the description of Jesus that says that he, went to a, he would go to a desolate place to pray. Interesting. The next story is Jesus healing the paralytic. Jesus is at a house and... In this particular scenario, the people listening to Jesus were not just the public, the crowd, it was also the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They've come to a point where, they, where they're going to follow Jesus and they're going, you know, I can imagine them, you know, like arms folded and leaning on one side, tapping the other foot, going, what is he going to say now? Waiting to see if what he says would fit with their understanding of the laws and understanding of God or something totally different or something even 
in this case, blasphemous. But not just was he teaching, the story tells us of friends of this paralytic guy who decided that, hey, we want Jesus to heal this guy too. We want Jesus to heal our friend. And so together, they bring him to this house and then they realize it's too packed. We can't go, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, you know. And, and they were trying to find what's the best way to get in. And the best way to get in, church, the best way to get to Jesus with a paralytic friend is to break the roof. That's what they did. They went up to the roof, they broke it, and then they lowered this guy down so that literally they can come in front of Jesus. Now, by this time, everybody knew what was going on, right? And then Jesus tells him, Jesus looks at his friends, saw their faith, and then looks at him and goes, your sins are forgiven. Remember those guys? Hui! What did he just say? Did he just say your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Did he just say he's God? Blasphemy! And Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, said, well, tell me, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say you are healed? But so that the Son of Man, in verse chapter 8, 5, verse 24, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And he walked. And so the whole crowd was like, wow, this is, not just is he healer, he now claims to be God. There was amazement. There was this wonder. I'm sure all the public who wanted to see Jesus heal somebody, their, 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 their appetite was satiated because I'm following to see the signs. All right, wow, you know, see this healer, see how you do things and all that. Sure. But not just did he heal, he actually said something that is now ringing in the ears of those who heard it. Next story, Jesus calls Levi, also known as Matthew. Levi is a tax collector. And, and, and how we understand tax collectors in those days is hopefully not like how we see Lembaga Asil Dalam Negeri. Extortionist, sinner. You know why? Because they, they were, they, they're under the Roman authority to collect tax for the Roman government. But they were notorious for increasing the amount to be paid so that they would get a cut for themselves. And so the general Jewish public hated tax collectors. They would regard them as sinners. And these guys knew it. Levi knows it. Nicod sorry, not Nicodemus. Zacchaeus. Sorry, Zacchaeus. He's not even a tax collector. He's chief tax collector. And, and these were the kind of people that the Jewish leaders and teachers of the law would consider as sinful people, sinners, extortionists. But Jesus walks up to Levi and says, come, follow me. And Levi drops his job, drops his cushy job, drops the, 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 the amount of money he can make from his job and decides to follow Jesus. But not only that, he throws a party for Jesus and he calls all his friends along. All the ones that the Jewish people call sinners, unrighteous, criminals, unlawful people, and then Jesus sits and feasts with them. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are talking to, to, to Jesus' disciples and, and going, or Jesus himself, and, and going, what are you doing with all these sinners? You're supposed to be righteous. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to, you know, to, to be the one who knows the laws. And, and you're spending time with sinners? That famous response by Jesus who says, a physician those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the fourth story. The fifth one. There's a conversation between Jesus uh, and, 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 the, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about this point about fasting. Basically, Jesus was being challenged to say uh, with, with this question, the f- disciples of John the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they all fast. They all do what is right. They, they do these rituals. They offer their prayers. They fast. They, they, they beat their bodies. But your disciples, feasting, drinking, eating, partying, why aren't they fasting like the proper disciples do? Jesus goes on a story about the bridegroom when he's here, when he's not here, what happens when fasting takes place. He talks about new wineskins, and we'll look at that a bit later. But there was this intense conversation about this whole idea of what it means to fast. The last two stories are stories about the Sabbath, things that took place on the Sabbath. One was Jesus and his disciples plucking grain and then rubbing it, getting off the shaft and then eating it, but on the Sabbath. The other one was to uh, was at a synagogue and, and this man with a withered hand came in and the same guys, the same guys who, who fold their arms and tap their feet, were looking and waiting to see what Jesus would do. Would he heal this guy on the Sabbath? And Jesus healed him. And the very famous phrase from that set of passages is this one at chapter 6, verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a quick overview of what took place during, from Luke chapter 5 to 6, verse 11. And like I mentioned to you just now, I asked myself, what is Luke saying here? What is Luke sharing by compiling these stories together? More importantly, what is God saying to us individually and as a church? Why this set of compilation of stories together? What is he trying to tell us? And this is what I feel Jesus is saying to us today. I'm giving a call for discipleship. Come, follow me. I'm giving a call for discipleship. Come, follow me. This is the message that Jesus is bringing to his church today. And it is an important one. A church that follows Jesus, that is discipled by Jesus, is a strong, excellent, and dynamic church. You've heard this very often. It's our vision. If we want to be strong, excellent, and dynamic, we have to be disciples of Jesus. A a church that is disciples of Jesus can take frontiers. We don't take frontiers if we're not discipled by Jesus. We don't see breakthrough in our lives, spiritual lives, if we're not discipled by Jesus. We don't, and this is very important, we don't see the full reality of Jesus in our lives if we're not disciples. Jesus will remain up here and maybe a bit of your heart. But the full reality of Jesus lived out in your life is not seen unless we're disciples of Jesus. To be honest, this is what I really want to see in this church. I want to see a church full of disciples of Jesus. 
people who are willing to say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. I want to give my life to know you and to follow you and to obey you and to live my life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Is that what you want? Is that what you want, church? The last thing I want to see is this church becomes a place just for comfort, just for, for the aircon, just to hear something good to tickle your, your, your heartstrings. But I want the Holy Spirit to pull your heartstrings, tighten it, strengthen it, transform you. That is what the church should become, disciples of Jesus. Now, there are many books on discipleship. In fact, if you want to talk about discipleship, you can, you can go to courses on discipleship. You can read even the, the entire Bible to tell us a lot about discipleship. What I'm just going to do today for all of us is to look at Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, verse 11, and distill from there factors about discipleship, aspects about discipleship that I feel God is saying to this church today. There are four factors, I believe, is part of this call for discipleship. And I've phrased it into a sentence and I'm just going to share that with you now. Discipleship, discipleship is a desire to forego everything to follow Jesus. A desire to forego everything to follow Jesus. That's how I understand Luke chapter 5 to 6. Discipleship is a desire to forego everything in order to follow Jesus. Jesus. And how I'm going to look at these four factors is I'm going to look at it from bottom up. I'm going to get from the end first because we want to look at Jesus first, all right? Who is this person that we are, we are called to follow? Who is this person that we are called to be discipled by? The Jesus factor. There are six things about Jesus that I want to share with you today from this passage that enables us to get a grasp of who this Jesus is. Some of you, if you're here for the first time or, or, or you're not a believer, here's my suggestion to you. The Bible tells us about who Jesus is. And in this section here, it tells us a few things about who Jesus is. There's so much more about Jesus. And, and I'm still learning about Jesus more and more each day. But when I look at this passage, there are a couple of things about Jesus that he, that, that he wants to show us today. And the first one is this. More than a master, he is Lord. More than a master, he is Lord. This is Peter's realization when Jesus called him and the calling of the first disciples. You see, when, when Jesus called Peter and said, Hey, Peter, let down your nets for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. He said, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing, but at your word, I'll do it again. I will let down the nets. And of course, the, the, the story of the net breaking, boat sinking catch takes place. And after that, he realizes, Peter realizes who he's been speaking to, and then he looks at Jesus, and then he says something different, something very interesting. He says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I noticed, hey, wait, you caught Jesus with two terms. Let's look at them. The first one is the word master. What does master mean? Master actually refers to someone with authority. So, for example, if you're a teacher, you're a master. So, they would, they would, they would treat you or the, the term that may be used for you is master. If you were a centurion and I'm one of the soldiers under your care, under your, your leadership, I can call you master. 
If you're my boss, I can call you master. So you're my employer, I can call you master. That's what it means, someone with authority over you. So yeah, you take orders um, and, and, and the like, but, the, but that's, what, that's the title you give to that person. But Lord, Lord is a different term. Lord connotes someone with supreme authority. So you're not just one step higher than me, you're not just my superior, you're not just uh, maybe two steps higher, you're not my boss, you're not the, the manager of the company. You have supreme authority. You have supremacy. And by the word supremacy, it connotes that you're the highest authority. That was how Peter saw Jesus. At one point, just a teacher, sitting on my, standing on my boat, teaching, teaching, teaching with authority. Yes, you know, he said some pretty powerful stuff. Uh, and these guys are listening. I'm there just, you know, manning the boat and making sure you don't fall off into the water. That kind of thing. And then he turns to me and then he says, let down your nets. So I naturally just treat him as teacher. So master, I've toiled all night, nothing. Okay, la, but since you say it, I'll do it. La. Now, I don't even know if he was sarcastic doing that. But he did it anyway. Right? He dropped his nets down for, uh, dropped his nets down for a catch. And then he caught this huge amount of fish. And when he caught this huge amount of fish, he realized he cannot contain it. He gets his two friends to come along and, and both boats try and carry all of that fish back to shore. But then he switched from master to Lord. He looked at Jesus and then he realized two things. One was his sinfulness. It wasn't just, wow. You know, if you, if you do a good job at work and you get a client who suddenly signs an agreement with you or opens an account with you for, let's say, $1 billion, and you go to your boss and go, I got you back. We're doing this! Yes! Peter didn't do any of that. Peter looks at his master, switches, and goes, depart from me from I am a sinful man. Have you ever done that? You go to your boss like, wow, you're so great, huh? I throw it, but I got this one billion contract. No, right? He switched his tone. He switched his understanding from John, John just master. This is supreme, Lord. Supreme. Depart from me. So he understood his sinfulness. And the second one, of course, is he understands that Jesus is not just the master, he's Lord. And then Jesus, at that moment, calls him and says, come, and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know about you, but for Peter, it was a no-brainer. First master, now Lord, and now this Lord calls me to follow him. He drops his job, not just his job, he drops his windfall catch. Right? Those one of those one-in-a-million deals that you got, those one-in-a-million transactions that you've managed to secure, he drops it. Your durian runto, he drops. And he follows Jesus. And not just him, three guys as well. Andrew, his brother, and then James and John. I don't know what happened to the fish. I don't think anybody cared. Because in front of them was the Lord. And all these things they can set aside. And they followed Jesus. More than master, he is Lord. Second one is this. More than healer, he is willing to heal. By this time, some of them already know, hey, Jesus is capable. Lah. And so this leper comes to him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. 
And Jesus says, I am willing. Now imagine if you were the disciples, you're the four of them. You're walking with Jesus. And you probably know to some extent, yeah, he's, he's capable of healing. That's not an issue. But is he willing to heal? Does he want to heal? Does he, does he do this arbitrarily or is this part of his nature? And this leper and this encounter with the leper shows the disciples, he's, hey, this guy cannot not just heal, no. He is willing to heal. He wants to heal. He wants to restore. And it doesn't matter for any of you, whether it's a skin disease or some other physical disease or your heart needs restoration. But Jesus is willing to restore. Jesus wants to restore. His heart is to restore. And what he was showing the disciples was that his heart for the people was that he wanted to restore them, wanted to give them rest, wanted to remove the anxiety and the worry and the unclean, 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 all that said over your life. Jesus was willing. He's a willing healer. Third one, not just was he a healer, he is God. And so the crowds were coming to see this teacher heal and, and, and do all the signs and wonders. And he was teaching and he had taught with authority. But when that paralytic man came down, Jesus found this to be a perfect time to say something very controversial, but declare the reality of who he really is. Your sins are forgiven. And then people start to realize this guy doesn't just claim to be a teacher, doesn't just heal, he claims to be God. He claims to be God. The disciples who were probably with him at the time were going, okay, what did I really get myself in? Because not just that I follow this master, he's now Lord, not just can he heal, he is willing to heal, he is really declaring, literally declaring, he is the Son of Man, he is God. Very important. More than righteous, he is a friend of sinners. You know the perspective of the Jewish people at the time, if you were a teacher of the law and you see Jesus feasting and eating and drinking with the sinners and the tax collectors, it's like, that's a no-no for you. That was the expectation. But why are you doing it? And then Jesus says, well, you, I am righteous. I am holy. I am a teacher. I have authority. But I did not come for all the elite. I come for the sick. I come to call the sinners to repentance. You see, a sinner cannot call sinner to repentance. That's blind leading the blind. But a righteous man who would be willing to step into the community of sinners and say, let's come into repentance. Let's come into repentance. That was what Jesus was doing. That was what Jesus... So the disciples, again those four guys, looking at all that was going on, in fact, okay, five, let's, call, let's include Levi in. Looking at all that was going on, it's like, wow. Master, Lord, willing healer, calls himself God now and spends time with sinners as their friend because he wants to call them to repentance. And the last one is this. More than a teacher, he is the Lord of laws. You see, let me tell you something about preachers. We don't make laws for you. We can teach you about the laws we can tell you what God says. We can study with you the book of Leviticus and Exodus and talk about all the different laws that were, that were posited through Moses to the Jewish community at that time. But all we're doing is exploring, expounding, understanding the laws that have been given. That's as much as a teacher can do. 
But here you are, face to face with Jesus, who tells you the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there are many, many laws, but this particular one, to keep the Sabbath holy, was the one that was challenged at that time. Because all they were doing was actually work during the Sabbath. At least, that's how it was understood. You were working during the Sabbath. You healing this guy means his work on the Sabbath. You plucking, rubbing, and eating the grain was work on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do that. And he says, you have all these laws. In fact, you've got this primary law that keeps the Sabbath, that says keep the Sabbath holy. And then you've got all these extra laws, these extra lower level laws to tell the people how to keep the Sabbath holy. But you're forgetting that the person you're dealing with is the one who came and made those laws in the first place. And if you were to encounter me, you would understand my heart about the Sabbath. What you've done is you've convoluted this idea of keeping the Sabbath holy and now you're sticking to that set of laws without coming to realize that the creator of those laws, the master of those laws, the, the Lord of the laws is here. And I can tell you why you're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy and how that is done. Many years ago, I wanted to do a master of laws. I, 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 did, I studied law and I practiced law. And, so I want to do a master of laws. And as I was preparing this, I looked at this and I went, no need lah. I'm coming face to face with the Lord of Laws. He's the true LOL. Don't laugh. He's, he's the one who created it. I might as well learn from him. I might as well understand the laws from the Creator himself. He is not just a teacher. He is the Lord of Laws. That's just Luke 5 to 6. If you read the entire Bible, Revelation of who Jesus is will become so much more clearer. But the question I want to ask all of you is this, based on these stories, is this. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy? Here's a man who came face to face with Peter. And after seeing that miracle, Peter realizes he's not just a teacher. He is Lord. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. You are way beyond what I thought you were. That's why it was a no-brainer for Peter. When the Lord would say, come, follow me, he was like, okay. I'll drop everything. I'll do it. Because I'm not just following a rabbi. I'm not just following some authoritative figure. I'm following the Lord. And all of you, if you're believers here, you've come face to face with Jesus. You've had an encounter with Jesus. During communion just now, you were asked to reflect on that moment when you first encountered Jesus. And that encounter for Peter was then. Where was your encounter? And when you look back at that encounter, isn't Jesus worthy of being followed? Isn't Jesus worthy of being discipled by? That is the question. Let me turn it the other way. Have you found anything else in all of creation or in all of your life that is worth more than Jesus to follow? H have you? Honest question, has there been anything else in the world more worthy than Jesus to follow? Because if not, then my next question to you is this. Why do we often give our lives to our other desires? Whether it's work or family or, or in fact, and this is more important, it's not just the outside things, it's the inside ones. Fear, hatred, resentment, 
anger and you run your life based on the anxiety and the worry that you go through and based on the circumstances that you go through and, and you put this before yourself and you say, I must comply with what is going on in my heart, whether it's this fear or anxiety or worry and then live my life in a particular way so that it's safe. If Jesus is by far worthy than everything else, then all these things should, as we used to sing, and all the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And I don't just mean the tough things in life, I mean even the good things in life. When you see Jesus, even your feasting is strangely dim. When you see Jesus, even your social media gets strangely dim. When you see Jesus, your job gets strangely dim. Your windfall gets strangely dim. If Jesus is worthy above all else, my challenge to you is this. Will you follow? If Jesus is worthy above all else, can you follow? Second one is this. The follow factor. What exactly does follow mean? Follow really means this. When you look at the story, I, I tried this, you know, as all preachers should. Check out the word follow on uh, Greek in Greek and see, check out the original language, see what these ones say. And literally, when I, when I looked at the word follow, it literally means follow. No massive idea of like, you know what, wow, this follow is very intense kind of following or less intense kind of following. No, like four different versions of follow, like, you know, the words of love. But just follow. So the crowds follow him. The disciples follow him. It, it, the, the word makes no difference. But when you look at the story, you see how different the disciples follow versus how different other people followed. And the first one is this. It was not a fad. You know what a fad is? Because it's cool. It's cool to follow Jesus. I, when I was a kid, I'm a 90s Christian kid, right? Um, so if you were a 90s Christian kid, how many of you wore a WWJD bracelet? Yes. Amen. You're a 90s Christian kid. Thank you so much. And now I feel so... Okay, I feel there are people who, who, who journeyed with me last time <laughs> in those days. And then people ask you, why you wear this WWJD bracelet? Oh, because I want to remind myself, now, what would Jesus do? Really, you know? <laughs> because my friends wore it, because it was on sale in this Christian bookshop, I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. This is where... And, and it's one of those things you can get by in school uh, without the prefects. Okay, well, I was a prefect, so I got myself through it. Um, <laughs> But, the, but it was one of those things that it's a fad. It's, it was cool. Maybe sometimes it reminded me about what would Jesus do, but, but most of the time it was just something interesting, something cool. But following Jesus is not a fad. It is reverential fear. Knowing who God is and saying, God, I want to follow you. Whatever you say, I obey. Whatever you do, I follow. I imitate you. I want to learn from you. I want to understand your heart. It's not just because my friends do it. It's not just because it's the latest thing. I want to follow you, and it's not just because it's cool. In fact, sometimes, most of the time, it's not cool to follow Jesus. It's not a fad. It is not chasing the latest craze. You know how many times in Jewish history, by the time Jesus came about, there were many messiahs? People claiming to be the messiah, this warrior, this fighter, this, this man who's like the zealot, right? And say, I'm going to overthrow the Roman government. Everybody goes, yay, we follow you. And then the guy dies. And the next one says, I will overthrow the Roman government. He's like, wow, this is the next one. Yes, we'll follow you. And then the guy dies. There was, in essence, militarily speaking, the Roman government was unthrowable. 
unoverthrowable. But here's this guy now who claims I'm the Messiah, speaks with authority, heals people, claims to be the Son of God, claims to be the Messiah, and people follow him. Disciples follow him because they had a realization of who he is. In John chapter 6, verse 68, and I encourage you to go there as well. Just put your finger in, in Luke chapter 5, but go to John 6, 68, where when, when Jesus was saying certain things that were really hard to understand or, or, or difficult to, 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 to agree with, a lot of them left. A lot of the crowds left. They wouldn't want to listen to him anymore. But then Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, are you going to leave also? And here's what Peter said. Peter said in John 6, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who's the next person to follow? Who's the next Messiah to follow? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Realization. This is not the latest craze. This is him. This is it. This is the guy who really is the Messiah, who really is the Son of God, and we want to follow him. It is not the fad. It is not the latest craze. It is also not like the crowds. The crowds are not invested in this. The crowds are just following because they want to see the signs and the wonders. They want to see, ooh, and then, ah, this is, ooh, ah. And then you hear things that are so powerful in authority and you go, wow. I don't even know if they're going to apply it. They were not invested in it, but the disciples, they were invested. They gave up their jobs. They gave up their, their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And it is not for the healing, the signs and the wonders. Yes, that's wonderful. Yes, that shows the glory and the power of Jesus. But we're here for the way, the truth and the life. The disciples followed Jesus because he had the words of eternal life. The disciples followed Jesus because they saw in Jesus not just the power and authority, but the reality and the identity of who Jesus is was clear for them. Of course, they were still growing in it, but, but when they were with Jesus, they saw this is the guy we would invest our life with because he is the way, the truth, and the life. The question I want to ask all of you is this. Will we follow wholeheartedly? Jesus will not be your latest cool thing. And I know that when, for many of you, if you've become a believer, you've encountered Jesus, it's not because he was cool. It's because he spoke right deep inside your heart and you said, I will follow Jesus. He's not just the latest craze. It's not just because of healing and the signs and wonders, but we want to be followers who are discipled by Jesus wholeheartedly. The next one. Let me just go back to the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is a desire to forego everything to follow Jesus. And the next one, we've looked at Jesus. We looked at uh, the the. the discipleship, the following factor, we now look at the word everything. Two guys, Levi gave up his job. Peter, Andrew, James and John gave up their jobs, their windfall to follow Jesus. And in Luke chapter 18 verse 28 in this conversation about Jesus and this rich young man and he said how difficult it is for rich people to come into the kingdom of God, Peter then quips, Right? He tells Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. If you read it in the NIV, it says we have left everything and followed you. That's the gravity of their sacrifice to follow Jesus. 
The question is, is he worth everything we have? Is he worth everything we have? For Peter, he was. Jesus was worth everything he had. It was worth more than everything he had. And so he went to pursue the more. He went to pursue something more worthy than everything he had. Now, mind you, Peter had a wife and a mother-in-law. That we know. I don't know about kids, but he had a wife and a mother-in-law. He had a home to support. And I know that his home would be well supported. In fact, Peter healed, sorry, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. But my point is this. When you come face to face before someone who is not just worthy, but worthy above everything that you have, would we hold Jesus worthy? Would we show Jesus how worthy he is above all else? The everything factor. The last one is this. If discipleship is a desire to follow, forego everything to follow Jesus, the last one is this, desire. And this by far is the most important when it comes to discipleship. The question I want to ask each one of us is this. How willing are we to give up other desires in return for more of Jesus? How willing are we to give up other desires in return for more of Jesus? Luke chapter 5, verse 33 to 35. This conversation about fasting. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often, they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, you eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. See, there was this comparison between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist. Jesus' disciples, feasting. John the Baptist's disciples, fasting. Why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Well, Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. We understand this to refer to himself, right? I'm here. The bridegroom is here. And if you're at a wedding and your bridegroom is here, what are you doing fasting? It's time to feast. It's time to celebrate. It's time to enjoy presence together. And so that's what he's doing. But there will come a time when I am not around. There will come a time when I am not around. And when I am not around, you'll be fasting. You'll be fasting. And the question then to me was, why? Why fast when Jesus is not around? Why feast when Jesus is around? Because true fasting brings the reality of Jesus back into our lives. So you have a celebration here because your, your, Jesus is here, the bridegroom is here, he is physically present with you, you can interact with him face to face, you can talk with him, you can spend time with him, you, you understand his heart, you can observe him, all of that is taking place. But when he's not around, how then do we bring the presence of Jesus into our lives? How then do we renew the presence of Jesus in our lives day to day? Knowing his heart, understanding his, his, the, the things he does, knowing all of uh, and, and, and encountering him day by day. Jesus' answer to that is fasting. Fasting brings re the reality of Jesus into our lives. So fasting is more than just wanting to feel some sense of suffering. Fasting is more than just wanting to identify with those who don't have the same luxuries in life. Fasting is more than just health benefits. Fasting is more than just discipline. Fasting is not uh, putting a badge on your shoulder and saying, I've survived 40 days without coffee, without social media, 
without food, I am a survivor. No. If you went through fasting 40 days and that was what you came out of with, I'm sorry, you've missed the point. Fasting is about wanting more of Jesus in your life. Fasting, true fasting, makes room for God. True fasting makes room for God in your life. Because what you're doing is you're getting rid of base desires. You're getting rid of things that you, that you, you consider very close and important to you and you're removing it and saying, God, fill me. You know when I learned this? Just last week. I started this fast because, and I told my wife this, forgive me God, I told my wife this and I said I want to fast. Why? Because I want to do a health reset. Basically this, most of the birthdays in my family plus Chinese New Year, plus Christmas, all happen between October to February uh, every year. And so all the cakes and the parties and the junk food and the fried food and the, all sorts of things all compile within this period. By the time I'm February, I'm like, Ugh. And you're like, you know, maybe I'm not healthy enough. So I need a health reset. Where was Jesus? Number three. Alright, so I want to know Jesus more. I said, God, forgive me. Priority. But... It came to a point when this fast was so intense and my mind and my body and my spirit was, was conflicting with each other. It was like, you must fast, you must fast. No, you no need to fast. Like, fast no, no need to fast. Is, is this is your mind telling you, hey, Wayan, think about it. Think about it. If you wanted to do a health reset, uh, there are better ways to do it. Fasting is totally unsustainable. You've heard this before? All these like killer diets, you know, four weeks, boom, and then suddenly your body changes. And then after that, what happens after the, the, that four weeks? Fasting is not sustainable. Change your diet. Lah. Diet is more sustainable. Exercise is more sustainable. So, you know, don't do this fast. Don't have to do this fast. If you want a health reset, do something else. Eat a bit. Lah. The other one the mind, my mind told me was this. If you ate, right, I think God would have been fine with it. Lah. I mean, I'm asking you to feast. I'm not asking you to suddenly go to a buffet and, you know, whack the, 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 the platter and all that. But if you put something else to just not make you feel so hungry, I think God would have been fine with it. I mean, you can still pray, ma. You can still spend time with God, ma. You can still worship God, ma. You can still read the Word of God, ma. Just put something to fill inside your stomach. Ma. But then my spirit was like, no, no, not yet, not yet. Fast. Why? I came to a point where I was like, why did I get myself into all of this, because all these health reasons that I wanted to think about and all that all just went down the drain. Why am I fasting? And it is this. I want Jesus. I want to face my physical desires and even seemingly good ones and say, for Jesus, I am giving this up. On Tuesday this week, when I'm going through all of this conflict, I wrote in my journal, I'm just going to share that with you. Why am I fasting? Because I want Jesus. I need Jesus. I want to say I need Jesus more than anything else, even food. I want Jesus to satisfy. I want to be set free from my needs and know what it is like to be sustained by Jesus. Will the fast end? Yeah. Will I return to eat? Yeah. But I don't want food to be my go-to. I want Jesus to be my go-to. I want to make room for God in my life. I want to bring you to the last slide there. I feel my dependence on Jesus increasing. So, the next slide. I feel my dependence on Jesus increasing even as my desire or withdrawal symptoms of food is also increasing. It's tough. But I'm not dreading it. I'm looking to Jesus even more. 
when the bridegroom isn't physically here with you, when we have yet to come face to face with Jesus, celebrating with Him in heaven, we fast. Because fasting draws us closer to Him. It draws more of God into our lives. It makes room in our hearts for Him. Jesus is not someone we squeeze into our clutter. We prioritize our desire for Him above all else. You know Jesus promised when you fast? is Jesus gives you a new wineskin. There's a little passage there about wine and new wineskins, not putting old cloth into new garments. And the reason basically for this is that when you come before God and you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, God is going to pour into your life so much more of Jesus that you've never realized before. But when He does that, is your spirit ready to contain it? Is your spirit ready to say, I, I am open to the work that God is doing in my life? Because if you've tasted the old and you say the old is good, like what Jesus was saying in that story, in that conversation, then you don't want the new. And for many of you, yes, your encounter with Jesus was great. It was wonderful. But there's so much more about Jesus that He wants to show you, He wants to reveal to you. And when we fast, we prepare ourselves for Jesus to be revealed in greater measure. We prepare ourselves to be able to contain Jesus as revealed in greater measure. That is the call for us, church. I want to end this, and I just want to encourage you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. So no one looking around or to the right or to the left. Discipleship is a desire to forego everything and follow Jesus. Most of the time in our heads, in our minds, we know, yes, follow Jesus. Obviously, nobody else. Forgo everything, yes. But desire. Desire is where rubber meets the road. Desire is where push comes to shove. And every day, we're asking ourselves, do I desire this? Do I hunger for this? Do I want more of this? And that's my challenge to you today. My challenge to you today is to ask and desire for more of Jesus. And when you say, God, I want more of this, and, and you ask God, how do I show you that I want more of you? Look no further than Luke 5.33. Begin to start ridding yourself of things in your life that you now see is less worthy than Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to make room for you. Fast. Come before God and say, God, I'm going to release this to you. It's not worthy enough compared to you so that you can fill in more more into my life. So church, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and if you desire this, again, all eyes closed, all heads bowed, I want to invite you to stand. If that is you, I want to invite you to stand and I want, I want to pray for you. And as we stand, you're basically telling Jesus, I want to follow you and I want this desire to grow so deep in my heart 
this desire that I've had before and maybe I've lost it, I want it to be renewed. Or this desire that I still have right now, may it be increased in my life. If that's you, I want you to just come before God, make this place where you're sitting an altar before God and saying, God, I want to respond to you and I want to follow you. I want to increase in my desire to become a follower of Jesus. I'm just going to give this 10 seconds before I pray for you. But if that's, your, if that's your heart and that's what you want to come before God with, I just want to encourage you to stand. This is not between you and me, it's between you and God. It is no easy feat to be a follower of Jesus. But it is the greatest call of all. And this relationship with Jesus transforms your life and changes you. You're going to be a new wineskin containing more of Jesus, more revelation, more knowledge, more heart of Jesus poured into your life. And so, Father, I just want to pray for all my brothers and sisters, my uncles, aunties here who are just standing before you now and saying, God, I want to increase my desire to follow you. I want to increase my desire to declare you are worth it all. And Father, I pray that as they take this, this is not just some answer to a call from the pulpit, but this is an answer to a call from you. And I know that you are pleased. I know that when you see these hearts, you go, thank you. Now let's go on this journey together. I know that when, my, when this church here sees your heart, oh God, it draws them even closer to you. And their hearts are filled with more of you. Lord, increase our desire, God. Increase our desire to know you more and more. Increase our desire to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, you see us standing before you. I just want to say, when you fill your hearts with God, the songs of the words we sang just now in, in, in worship, where it says, my heart will cry, these bones will sing, great are you, Lord, that's going to come true for your life. It's not just a voice that you raise to God on a Sunday, but your whole being worships God. Your whole being declares how great God is because He's filled so much of you. You know why rocks cry out? Because they cannot tahan. They cannot contain it anymore. They cry out. Your bones will cry out. Your heart will cry out. And all that glory to God because we have been filled with so much of God. So Father, I want to bless this church, God, with more of you. I want to declare that we will encounter you even greater. We will be filled with so much more of you. We will be filled with so much more of your glory, your heart and your love and your power and authority over our lives. And as we do, Father, this world, our world will never be the same again, but the world of those around us will also never be the same again. That's the commission is giving to us, church, that when you carry more of God, you will change your surroundings. You will transform through Jesus in your life. And so I bless you this day as you leave this hall and live out your lives with your families, with your work, in your workplaces, in your colleges, in schools, wherever you are at. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you 
and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give God glory, church. Let's give God glory. Amen. The, the service is over. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, if you're here for the first time, please stay with us. Connect with us outside this hall. Um, and I'll see you again in the weeks to come. God bless you.